0: This segment of the show is brought to you by the PGA Tour Superstore. See why golfers everywhere are proud to call PGA Tour Superstore their golf pro shop. Visit them online at PGATourSuperstore.com. Now back to Chris and more of the show.
1: All right, now back with me is 1991 Open champion and a fantastic broadcaster now, Ian Baker Finch. Let me remind you about Ian's background. He's from Queensland, Australia, turned pro in 1979, and he credits Jack Nicholas as his greatest golf influence, saying he based his game on Mr. Nicholas's book, Golf My Way. He won his first professional tournament at the 1983 New Zealand Open, finished third in the World Series of Golf in 1988, and started playing regularly on the PGA Tour in 89, won his first PGA Tour event at the 89 Southwestern Bell Colonial, won the 1991 Open Championship at Royal Birkdale, finishing with rounds of 64 and 66, to win by two over fellow countryman Mike Harwood and three strokes over Fred Couples and Mark O'Meara. Following year, he finished uh, sixth at the Masters and second at the Players' Championship. In 2000, he was awarded the Australian Sports Medal for his achievement in Australian sports. And he's now clearly one of the best golf analysts in the business. And I'm very honored he is back with me again tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Ian, thanks for coming back on the show.
2: Thanks very much, Chris. Good to be with you, and thanks for having me on again.
1: So, Ian, um, I wanted to start out by, you know, kind of getting your thoughts about what we're seeing out on the PGA Tour right now. We, we've got Bryson DeChambeau bombing at 420-plus yards off the tee. We've got COVID, that the guy staying in the bubble. Um, a lot happening in and around the PGA Tour, which is sort of odd, and I say odd just because Guys hitting the ball over 400 yards off the tee isn't something we're used to seeing. What's your thoughts about what you're seeing on tour right now?
2: Well, as you've mentioned quite a few of the things that are are interesting to watch. It's great that golf is back as the only sport on television at the moment. Um, I think that's a a credit to the game of golf itself, how it is uh, you know available to everybody to be able to get out and. And lead a healthy lifestyle and, and be a part of this great game. So that's that's a wonderful part about golf and the PGA Tour being back on television and back on CBS. And for me and the rest of the CBS team, it's great to be uh, you know a part of everyone's living rooms on the weekends now and and bringing golf to everybody and showing these great players and, and showing the, uh, the the talent out there. But it's strange in that there's no people out there watching them. So I think that to me is is the most interesting part of all of
3: this.
1: Yeah, what's it like as a broadcaster, you know, only hearing sort of the odd clap, you know, from someone who's probably standing in their backyard watching watching the tournament. No no roars, nothing of, of that kind is it? What's it like you know kind of being out there but there's you're you're missing all of the fan interaction?
2: Yeah, it's interesting. It's um I thought it was amazing about two weeks ago when Justin Thomas hold that 50-foot putt on the final green during the playoff against Colin Morikawa at the workday. And the only thing you heard was him yelling out his own expletives and his own excitement at holding the putt. Normally, that would be a huge deafening roar and uh, we'd have 20 different Angles shown by CBS from all our great camera operators, uh, you know, showing the excitement in the crowd up there on the hill and Jack Nicklaus and his wife, Barbara, and everyone around. And then all we had was the players' response or the caddies' response or, you know, 10 or other people around. So that part of it is really unreal. The one good thing is that we're getting to see all these great golf courses um, for what they are. Uh, we, we show great angles and great views of, of the great golf courses. And without crowds, you, you actually get to see the entire golf course. So I think that would be the only plus. For the players, it's got to be surreal. You know, they're out there like they're playing in a in a college tournament. In fact, a Tiger was asked about it. He said, uh, well, I had a few people following me in college as well. You know, and they said, is this like being back <laughs> in college? You know, Tiger always had a thousand people following him. Um, but it, yeah, it's it's interesting to see, and interesting to see how some players react better and and some worse to the surroundings.
1: Ian, do you think, and as you mentioned that uh, that putt from Justin Thomas at the workday, do you think the lack of crowds is actually having an impact on the tournament? Here's why I say that: if if when Justin makes that putt and the crowd typically goes crazy, like you mentioned, it's got to be a lot different trying to then put another putt in on top of that for Morikawa with, you know, kind of battling that sort of roar and that sort of thing. Does it make it, you know, somewhat easier? Is the pressure less because there was nobody out there. So it's easier to step up and make that putt. Mm,
3: That's
2: a very good question. An interesting one. That I really can't give a I can give a truthful answer, I don't know, but also, I think some players kind of relish the fact that it's just them and just their ability and just their inner thoughts or feelings, whereas some are enhanced by the crowd reaction and that uh enormity you know of what's going on around them and the and the experience involved so. I don't know at that time if it made Colin Morikawa's 20-foot putt any easier. Uh I I doubt it did just because he still had to go do it, right? After right. all that, but I know I know what you mean. It's a it's a difficult one and I I don't really I haven't seen a trend yet which ones which players are playing worse with no crowds and which players are playing better. We can only go with you know the results that we've seen.
1: Do you think we're headed towards a patron patronless Masters? Do you think we'll have a, a, any patrons at that event, or do you think we're going to go without uh, fans or patrons throughout the, the rest of the golf season?
2: Once again, I, I'd be guessing. Uh, I'm hoping that we have patrons by then. That will be the second week of November. Um, at least a, a limited number of patrons, perhaps. I don't know how we do the, the six feet apart at a golf tournament with thousands of people. Um, It's going to be different as it is being held in November as opposed to around Easter time in April. Um, I think the course will show beautifully. It'll be something different. Uh, It'll be a lot of fun to cover on CBS. Uh, Whether or not crowds will be available or or allowed or... uh, I don't know do they do they even do it if there's no crowds? I'm not sure, but that will be up to everyone at augusta national and you know it's just such a special tournament and great place. I, I hope it happens, and I hope it happens with with people there to watch.
1: It's also a place that you've had some success during your playing days you You finished tied for seventh and ninety one tied for sixth and ninety two tied for tenth and ninety four Talk about the success that you had while you got the opportunity to be a part of the Masters.
2: Uh, I love playing there. I love the golf course. I, I first played there in 1985. Um, the greens were too fast for me. I was I grew up a uh, country boy on Bermuda greens that were running about four and a half on the stint meter. Um, the surrounds of greens are better now than the greens I grew up on. So when I first started putting on fast greens i I learned the game and it's a different game as, as people that know what i'm talking about can attest going from slow bermuda to very fast bent but i was an aggressive putter and when i got to the masters the greens were so fast and the lip outs were so severe that i never really putted well there and i feel in 91 and 92 i really could have won had i not had as many three putts as i did Uh, But the greens were in great shape. The golf course is just spectacular. You know, nothing better. And I always enjoyed being there. Um, I wasn't a long hitter. But um, most players could still reach the par fives. This is talking about the early 90s. Uh, Now it's with irons. But back then it was, you know, long irons and and fairway woods. But I I still think if I would putted a little better, if I hadn't been so aggressive, I, I may have had a chance to to really win there. Uh, but I, I still enjoy going back each year and I get a chance to play there occasionally with friends and uh, to cover the tournament is, uh, is a great privilege. That's for sure.
1: You mentioned your first trip there in 85. Do you remember when the uh, invitation came in the mail and what uh, your first drive up Magnolia Lane was like?
2: Yeah, do I ever? I, it was pretty amazing because I, I played well in the Open Championship the year before. And I had a chance to win, and I didn't, obviously. Seve Bagasteros had won so well. But when I received, uh, towards the end of that year, the invitation for the Masters, it was a big deal, because I was only just 24 years of age, and in those days, that was still young to be invited as an international player to come play. And the drive up Magnolia Lane, and I had my friend from Australia come caddy for me, and yeah, it was a very special time, uh, a memory I'll never forget. Uh, once again, I, I didn't putt well there. I, I played nicely, didn't putt well. I missed the cut. But first time at the Masters, I think for any player that you ask, Chris, on this show or any time you get a chance, they will always remember that first time up Magnolia Lane and, and their first time teeing off at the Masters.
1: Ian, I read that you learned how to play the game by reading Jack Nicklaus's book, Off My Way. And then, mid 80s, early 90s, you're playing in major championship fields along with him. What was that like?
2: Yeah, very, once again, very special. He's become a very good friend and, and a friend of the family. We live in the same area now, down in Jupiter, Palm Beach Gardens area in Florida. And he and Barbara were instigated uh, our move here when we came back to do television. About 20 years ago, we came back to this area be- because of the Nicholases and their family and Jackie and all the brothers and sisters, were a good friends. When I first had the chance to play with Jack, my idol, um, it was surreal. Uh, I couldn't believe it, but the first time Jack's caddy came over and asked me in 1985 at the Open Championship at Royal St. George's, and he said, uh, Jack's going out for a practice round. Would you like to come join him? and I- I said, are you kidding me? I'd, I'd love to. I, I I don't remember this, but I probably dumped the other two Aussie friends that I had to go play with Jack. I don't I don't know, but if I didn't, I, I would have. <laughs> you know what I mean? And just Jack and I went and played. And yeah, it was uh, great memories. And as I said, we, we played quite a few times over the years, and I've, I've been uh, a member of alongside him at the Bears club down here in uh in Jupiter, Florida for for a long while. I played with him there and you know, just to now um be a friend of my idol uh is something extra special.
1: So you got to tell me you, you you get an opportunity the first time to play with your idol in a practice round, and, you know, you get sort of that you know, out of nowhere invitation to go do it. What do you say to him? What do you, what's what's the conversation like? you know, what's it like trying to put a peg in the ground and try to tee off and then talk to him throughout the rest of that practice round?
2: Um, I, I remember a few bits and pieces along the way, but if you think I was 24 and he's 20 years my senior, so he was more a, a big brother, almost father figure in a way at that time. And, and as my idol and playing in my um, I played in the Open in '84, the Masters in '85. So it was only my third major championship um, to to play alongside him in a practice round and and pick his brain and I get a feeling for that golf course. And uh, it was just a special afternoon for me. It just a uh, um, one, one of those indelible memories as, as a young pro coming along. You know, at, at that time, I was just happy to be playing in an Open Championship. I wasn't a champion at that time. I was just one of the guys playing, and to be playing alongside the goat was something extra special.
1: And I want to talk about your 1991 Open Championship at Royal Burkdale. and you sort of burst into the lead thanks to a third round, 64, that included nine threes, and you finished Eagle Birdie. Talk about everything sort of coming together right then.
2: Yeah, it was amazing. I'd I'd had a great summer. I'd been playing well every week on the tour, and I'd lost in a playoff the week before that I I should have won. And, um, well, everyone always thinks they should win a playoff, shouldn't they? But in my mind, you know, I was playing well enough to win, put it that way. So I came in and I'd shot 71-71 the first two rounds, but hadn't holed a putt. But no one was really putting well. The course was in great shape, but the greens were were difficult to putt. And Birkdale was, is always windy and relentless. And I just found something on that homeward stretch. And on the second nine, uh, two-putted two uh, number of holes, you know, made a good putt from 30, 40 feet across the green on 17 for eagle and then knocked it stiff, tap in for birdie at the last. I just felt in a good place. You know, I was, I was playing nicely, hold a few putts, uh, got into that last group on the Sunday, which I'd been in a couple of times before at, uh, at St. Andrews. And that just gave me a feeling of maybe this is the time. This is my chance. I'm playing well. I just have to go out tomorrow and uh, play the way I'd been playing.
1: So what was it like sleeping on a share of the lead going into the final round of the Open Championship? Particularly, you mentioned Seve earlier. Seve, who had to be the sentimental favorite, he was right there looming only two strokes back.
2: Yeah, there was a lot of good players right there. Uh, Freddie Couples, Greg Norman, uh, Eamon Darcy from Ireland, uh, Mike Harwood, Mark O'Meara, who who I was paired with in the final grouping um, on Sunday. There was, there was a lot of good players, and to me, it was a matter of just trying to treat it like I'd been playing. Treat it like another PGA Tour event, treat it like a, a regular tournament, which is always hard to do at a major, and even harder to do when you're a chance or when you feel like you're playing well and a, and a, and a good chance of winning. So that was my main aim, and I was able to do that. Came out firing you know, the next day and uh, got the job done. But it's—I I never worried about the sleep or the—you know—that never troubled me. I stayed with my wife Jenny and my little baby Haley. Jenny was pregnant with our second daughter Laura, and we were in a house, uh, just sort of treating it like a uh, a regular at-home week, as we tried to do, you know, during the majors. And um, my main aim, as I said, was just to go and play the next day the way I had been playing and. Put aside the fact that it was, the open,
1: and you say you came out firing the next day. You sure did, you? You birdied five of your first seven holes. You went out in 29 and equal Tom Watson's record of 130 for the last 36 holes. I mean, that's as good a golf as as you could possibly play. I mean, you block everything out. You didn't hear? Did you hear anything? You know, Seve's crowd, any mm-hmm. of that sort of stuff. Talk about just blistering the course. You came off a blistering round and you did it again the next day. That's hard to do.
2: Yeah, it is. And that, that's um, that's the thing that uh, golfers struggle with. Um, well, most golfers, not Tiger, uh, not the guys that have won multiple times. They figure it out. But when you're trying to win your first major, there's so many distractions and I, I learned so much from playing with my friend Nick Faldo the year before in the final group again on the Sunday at St. Andrews. He he just went about it like uh, he was just playing like he knew he was going to win and nothing bothered him and I saw everything. I saw everything going on around me and, and he just sort of kept about his business and I think that's what really helped me the most in winning was having watched him the year before and seeing how clinical he made it and, uh, how focused he was. So that, that was the key to me was my breathing, focused on my breathing, focused on the shots I wanted to hit. Um, I had a big advantage going into the second nine and I, my goal was to just hit the fairway, hit the green and two putt, which I did all the way through. And then the 18th with a three shot lead, I just played safe down the left rough, made sure I avoided the bunkers. Uh, laid up just short of the green, chipped on, two putted for five to uh, to win by two. So I I just did all of the right things. You know I, I focused well, concentrated well, and didn't let anything bother me.
1: That 18th hole, when you when you lay up short, you've got a three-stroke lead. You're you're dry, you're safe. You know you can get up and down at four from there, you know probably in your sleep. What's it like walking up that 18th fairway knowing Mm -hmm. you're about to become the Open champion?
2: Um, All the way up to the very second to last shot, I I blocked it out. You know, I tried to enjoy it. I waved to all the crowd as you do. You know, the the grandstands, the bleachers there are fantastic. The crowds are uh, second to none. But at the same time, I still kept telling myself, you still have to get this done. And, uh, I can tell you one, one story about the moment I had that little pitch from probably 35 yards to the hole. And, uh, I'm lining up and my caddy, Pete, who was just sensational, Pete Bender, great caddy, great friend. He said, uh, you know, you can just play it over there to the left of the bunker and, and two putt, you know. And I said, hey, If I can't pitch it over the edge of that bunker, I don't deserve to win the open. And uh, I hit a little lob wedge from a firm lie, actually almost hold it, and hit the edge of the hole and ran a few feet by and two-putted for the bogey. But I still, in my mind, I still had to do it. I didn't allow myself to really enjoy it until the putt was in.
1: I mean, you got to spend a year with a claret jug. What are some of the fun things that you got to do with that over the course of those 365 days? Did you, How many people you drank out of it? What, what fun things did you do with it?
2: The, the most important thing is I got to share it with friends and people that meant something to me and my family along the way. Uh, I got to leave it for extended periods of time at various clubs that I was a member of, Lake Nona, in Arworth, uh, back home in Australia. Uh, so I I got to share it around and, um, got to drink lots of champagne, um, lots of cold Aussie beers and lots of great red wine with friends. I think that was the most memorable thing was I cherished it and I got to cherish it with my friends and family. And I still do. I I have a, a replica, of course, here in my office and, uh, We we share it with friends, certainly Open Championship Week, which I didn't get to do uh, last week, uh, this year, but um, toast the winner each year on, you know, drink a a fine bottle of red wine out of it. And I think, to me, that's the the most enjoyable side of it. It, It's a great trophy and a great honour to to hold it, but uh, to share it with friends and and people that uh, enjoyed the journey, that was the most important thing.
1: And just a couple more before I let you go. And we look ahead to this week at the the FedEx WGC event at TPC Southwind in Memphis. What do you expect to see at this week's tournament?
2: Well, as usual, I get I expect to see the guys that strike it the best win, and that's what always happens uh, there in Memphis. It, it's a great golf course, especially with the Bermuda greens since they changed them over the last. 10 years or so, it's always the best ball strikers and the best drivers of the ball that win there. So I look forward to seeing that. Um, Once again, those guys that drive the ball so far, Dustin Johnson's had success there, Brooks Koepka, uh, Daniel Berger, who won at Colonial about a month ago, the first time back. They're the guys that play well there every year. So I look forward to seeing that. I think Colin Morikawa will do well. I think Bryson DeChambeau will do well. It's a good golf course and it's a great championship. And, you know, of all of the events we play, the crowds there were spectacular. And we're not going to have crowds, but the people that run the event, that support the event, the volunteers, also all the FedEx uh, employees there in Memphis, they really get behind that tournament. It's really something special. Really enjoy going back there each year
1: and I read at the 2007 Barclays tournament while you were covering it for CBS, you got hit by an errant shot by Rich Beam in the cheek that momentarily <laughs> knocked you out. Do you, uh, you remind Rich of that every time you see him?
2: Uh, not every time. It's either he reminds me or I remind him. But, yeah, that was pretty amazing. I was about to interview uh, Bob Diamond, the head of Barclays, and uh, I, I think he would have got it right in the middle of the face if I hadn't been in the way because the ball you know, bounced back off the, the scaffolding of the bleachers and hit me in the, in the side of the face. But if I'd been like two inches further back, it would have got Bob right in the mouth as he was facing me. But yeah, it was. Um, I've been hit a couple of times on television. Actually, I got hit in the head in Australia by Bernhard Langer. I was doing an interview over the back of a green one time and he hit me in the head. And I went down. So uh, I think that might be another record being hit in the head twice whilst uh, you know doing an interview on television.
1: <laughs> no doubt. Um, Ian, I don't know if you heard the end of my uh, conversation with Tim Simpson, but um, he said, you know, hey, if there were four words to describe Ian Baker Finch, it would be pure class and total gentleman. And if you had to ask me for two more words, it would be amazing putter. And uh, we were talking just prior to the show. He said, "You know, if uh, with my ball striking and and how well Ian could put, if you could have put us both together, the world that would have never heard of Tiger Woods." Your thoughts about that?
2: <laughs> well, that's very kind of Tim to say. I miss him. I haven't seen him for so long because we both stopped playing the tour around the same time, uh, 20 years or so ago. He was injured and he had a terrible bout with Lyme's disease and uh, I lost my confidence and, and didn't play well enough to compete anymore, so I stepped down and stood away. But, yeah, there weren't any better ball strikers 30 years ago than Tim Simpson. He played really, really well. He was he was um, uh, an excellent straight hitter and a really solid iron player. And, and had as he's right, if I'd putted for him, he would have won a lot of times, that's for sure. So uh, I hope he's well. I hope his family's well. Uh, you, you, you meet so many great guys out here on tour over the years, and we're all one big happy family when we're out here. But when you move move aside, I've been very fortunate during the telecasts and being a part of television for so many years that I've kind of stayed in touch with the tour and, and all the players. But those that have stepped aside or got old like myself and got gray hair and gone and look after their children and grandchildren, I, I miss them. You know, you really... uh it really is a, a big family out here on tour.
1: Ian, before I let you go, let our listeners know how they can stay up to date with all the great things that you're doing and follow you, whether it's online or it's over social media.
2: Oh, sure. Well, you can follow me from three to six p.m. Eastern any weekend on CBS. That's the that's the best way you can follow the PGA Tour and, and listen in. Uh, I'm not a big social media guy. I don't self promote, but um, I'm at AB Finchy. Um, on Twitter and, uh, post a lot of shots of my grandchild, little Eloise on Instagram. And, but, uh, once again, I'm, I'm not selling anything. I'm just, uh, happy to be a part of the, the telecast on CBS. We have a wonderful family led by Jim Nance, who we all know. And, uh, just, just a, a happy band there at CBS doing what we love to do and, and calling the golf for our fans and everyone back home on the weekends.
1: Well, Ian, I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your busy schedule to come back and be a part of the show. It's always fun spending time with you. I hope we get the privilege of catching up with you again sometime soon.
2: Anytime, Chris. Thank you very much.
1: Take care, Ian. All the best to you and your family. Stay safe out there.
2: And to you too, sir. Thank you.
1: Thanks, Ian. That's the great Ian Baker Finch. Um, You know, you want to talk about a guy who had a tremendous playing career and is now like I say one of in my mind for my money the best golf analyst out there whether it's on radio or it's on television the guy just does a tremendous job painting the picture for us every week of what's happening out there on the PGA Tour and then you know giving us insightful analysis as well so it teaches us something plus it paints a great picture Ian's a, uh, like like Tim Simpson said, you know, at the end of his uh, his interview, he, he Ian's a, a wonderful person and a great guy. And uh, it's uh, always a privilege to get to spend some time with him. Hopefully we get that privilege again real soon. I hope uh, I'll reach back out to him. Maybe we can get him on the show. If, if we have a Masters this year, he would be a great guest to have on around that time. All right, before I close up shop tonight, I want to give a couple of more shout outs. First to our new sponsor over at Finn Cycles. It's time to rethink golf. The game is at a tipping point. The young people we need in the game don't have four and a half hours to spend out on the course. Pairing Finn Cycles with a desire to play ready golf can cut playing time in half because all golfers go directly to their own golf ball. Plus, it's tons of fun. Go online to finscooters.com and click on Find a Fin for a course that has them near you. I also want to give another shout out to our friends over at the McLemore. The McLemore Mountain Top Community rests atop the highlands of Lookout Mountain, Georgia, overlooking historic McLemore Cove and Pigeon Mountain. Surrounded on all sides by state and national parks, historic land districts, and private land trusts, the resort features an 18-hole Reese Jones and Bill Bergen Championship course, a gated residential community, and a planned clubhouse opening in the fall of 2020, plus planned hotel and conference center. The dramatic 18-hole course is made up of a variety of golf experiences, combining canyon holes, highland holes, cliff-edge holes that are well-suited for the beginning golfer as well as the senior player. McLemore also offers a wonderful six-hole short course called the Karen, Designed by Bill Bergen, the Karen provides players with a short warm-up or cool-down before or after a round, or a relaxing way to improve one's game with family and friends. McLemore is located a short driving distance from Atlanta, Nashville, Knoxville, Birmingham, and Huntsville, and just 35 minutes from downtown Chattanooga, voted number one best town in America two years in a row by Outside Magazine. While a private course, McLemore offers stay-and-play packages for guests in club-managed properties, as well as a number of membership opportunities, including social memberships, non-resident memberships, and corporate memberships as well. For more information, please visit McLemore online at themacklemore.com or give them a call at 800-329-8154. All right, now back with me is 1989 Open champion Mark Kalkavecchia. Let me remind you about Mark's background. He's from Laurel, Nebraska. His family moved to West Palm Beach, Florida when he was 13. He won the Florida High School Golf Championship in 1977, and he played his college golf at the University of Florida from 1978 to 1980. He was named All-SEC in 1979, and that season Mark won the Furman Invitational. He turned pro in 1981 got his first win on tour at the 1986 Southwest Golf Classic. Mark has one of the lowest scoring rounds to par in PGA Tour history. He finished 28 under, a four-round total of 256 at the 2001 Waste Management Open, which featured a second round 60. At the 2009 Canadian Open, he set a record by making nine consecutive birdies during his second round. In all, Mark has won 13 times on the PGA Tour, including that 89 Open Championship at Royal Troon and a playoff over Greg Norman and Wayne Grady. He's won four times on the Champions Tour. Over the course of his career, he's had 193 top 10 finishes and 351 top 25s. You can follow him on Twitter, at Mark Kalk. And I'm thrilled he is back with me again tonight here on Next on the T. Hey, Mark, thanks for coming back on the show. Hey, Chris. Nice to be back. So, Mark, I got to ask you, I saw the tweet this past weekend uh, that our friend Owen Brown sent out about the showdown in the Calcavecchia household last Saturday when Nebraska played Ohio State. Now, knowing you're from Nebraska, I'm guessing your wife, Brenda, is a Buckeye fan. So that had to be a rough afternoon for you. Yeah,
0: yeah. But I'm, I'm kind of a converted Buckeye fan. uh. We all pretty much knew the, uh, what the end result of that game was going to be, but uh, I think Scott Frost is doing a great job. Uh, I think Nebraska's on the mend and, and going to be a lot better, but uh, the Buckeyes are awful good, especially on
1: offense. Mark, I know um, you're a you're a COVID survivor, and um, your bout with it uh, included a drive from in, in your R V from a very long distance, it seemed like from home as I was tracking the story that uh that Brenda put out on Twitter. Talk about that experience, what that was like for you and how you got through it. Yeah, September was a was
0: a pretty rough month. Uh actually October hasn't been that great either. But uh uh I was diagnosed September third. We were in uh, Nebraska at the prairie club. And I did the spit test. Uh, we're driving to Sioux Falls and on Sunday the 6th, uh, my test came back positive. Then we finished driving to Sioux Falls and, uh, did another test there, came back positive again. And then, uh, now we had to decide what to do. Brenda kept testing negative, which was amazing. Uh, so basically after uh, sitting in Sioux Falls for two days, uh, we decided to, to just hit the road and go back to, uh, uh, Jupiter. So I had a 1750 mile drive and each day I felt worse and worse and worse. Took us three and a half days to get home. And, uh, yeah, by the time I get home, it was like, uh, you know, all the, all the fenders fell off the car. Uh, when I got home, uh, everything I just, I just fell apart and fell just uh, worse and worse and worse and then <clears throat> after five days at home went to the hospital and uh that that was actually the worst uh so they had all the symptoms uh, everything you could possibly imagine and uh told my wife i said i said if you don't get me out of this hospital i may not get out of here so yeah it was pretty bad uh i, I think i had about the worst case of any golfer that i've I've heard of, I know Tony Finau is really sick, but, uh, uh, of course, he's 30 years younger and, uh, about 80 pounds lighter than I am. So, uh, yeah, it was, it was a rough, rough stretch for sure.
1: You've also been dealing with some back issues. So are are you fully recovered from COVID and is is the back better? How are you feeling? Yeah,
0: now the COVID's fine. Um, I think I've got my strength back. Uh, I, I, I did a couple of MRIs a few weeks ago. Uh, you know, once the COVID hit, uh, every, everything started hurting my back. Uh, you know, pretty every, every bone in my body started hurting and, uh, uh, my, my spine's not good. Uh, I've got a lot of, a lot of issues, uh, with, with everything from the T1 all the way down to the F5. So, uh, we'll see. Um, I, I played the last few days and actually felt pretty good. So, uh, looking forward to Boca this week and, uh, our last turn of the year on the Champions Tour of Phoenix next week. Um, and actually my fun, uh, my son and I got in the father's son, uh, in December. So, so looking forward to that. I've been trying to get in that for years and, uh, very thankful for that. So it's going to be a fun, uh, fun few months, and then uh, reevaluate and see what, uh, what the toothache is going off my back.
1: You mentioned, uh, are we going to see you this weekend at the uh, at Timber at the Timber Tech Championship? I know it's right there in your backyard in Boca, so we, we can look forward to seeing you out there.
0: I will be there 100%. Yep, got the old at 7:20 a.m. tea time tomorrow in the pro am, so. Got to give up about four thirty my time here in Florida, which uh, is no big deal. I'm, I'm an early riser anyway, so uh, yeah. I Actually, uh, played with Russ Cochran and Gene Sowers today, and uh, out at the Questa Country Club, and felt like I played pretty good. So, uh,
1: looking forward to the week. Mark, I want to get your thoughts on uh, on the upcoming Masters. I mean. You, it's a tournament obviously. You got you got to play in many times, almost every year from 87 to 2008. Uh finished second in 88, tied for fourth back in 2001 and you've had 10 top 20s there. So you know that golf course. Well, what what do you expect to see from a a, mem- a, a November Masters versus what you're used to seeing in April?
0: So, it's going to be totally different. Uh I think especially based on uh, how cold it could possibly be. Um you know, November November Georgia could be cold. So we'll see. Uh, you know, Bryson and, and Phil and everybody else are bracing up for uh you know, just to hit it as far as they humanly can. Uh, which you know, is the way the game's going today, honestly. Uh but it's gonna be weird with no fans, no par three, uh it's gonna be a different atmosphere but uh I still think you know it's all about the greens there uh and and, and where you place your second shot, putting blah blah blah. So uh, you know <clears throat> look, there, there's no there's no replacing distance these days. It, it's it's the it's the it's the future of the game. It's the way the game's going. And uh you know Bryson proved it at uh, at Wingfoot. You know, you don't have to hit fairways. You've got to hit it 350 in the air, and uh, that's a huge
1: advantage. So to that end, without the patron there, does that play into their favor, into a guy like Phil's favor, into Bryson's favor, just, you know, bombing as far as you can because the patrons aren't there? Is that going to give them more opportunity to bounce into the pine trees and that sort of thing, or does that actually help <laughs> them uh, not having people there? Right, that's a good question. Uh, You know, I saw Justin Thomas was kind of,
0: last week, kind of complaining that uh, with no fans, it it didn't fire him up, you know, on Sunday like it used to uh, because he didn't have fans cheering for him and blah, blah, blah. So, you know, at Augusta, there's not that many holes where you can actually ricochet into the fans off the tee. one maybe on the left it could help you a little bit uh there's a few holes that that it might make a difference but i I think with no fans there you know still the masters it's still augusta national guys will still get fired up and uh you know we'll see but it's gonna it's gonna be a weird atmosphere for sure uh but I i don't think lack of fans
1: is gonna have a big impact on uh how anybody plays. Kinda of going back to your first year playing there, Mark, and that you're going all the way back to eighty seven. But do you remember what it was like the, when you went to the mailbox and that invitation was sitting in there for you? Well I do because the first time I went there
0: was eighty six uh to watch my buddy Ken Green. And uh and at that time I had zero status on tour. And Ken Green made like Four 50 footers from off the green the first day and tied for the lead. And it was one of the most exciting things I've ever seen. And I was on my way to Joplin, Missouri, uh, to play in a TPS mini tour event. So at that point, you know, playing at Augusta was the furthest thing from my mind. And then, surely enough, one year later, I was there. And, uh, it was, it was pretty amazing, but, uh yeah, you know, I always said about Augusta. It was it, it it was my favorite place to get to and my favorite place to leave. Um it was such a fun tournament. The atmosphere was so great. Uh, but by the end of the week you're so frustrated because of the greens or, or what have you. Uh it was just it was just time time to go. So uh but having said that just yesterday, matter of fact, like a guy asked me if you could go play one course right now just to go play it, what would it be and I said augusta national just 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 i mean if whether it be Marion or Finacock or pebble or or wherever or Southern hills or wherever any any great course in the country pine valley uh where would you go play and it would it would definitely be augusta uh
1: just because of uh because it's Augusta. Do you remember the, the first tee, the first time you played? I mean, I, I can't imagine what it's like to try to put a peg in the ground and and try to balance the ball on the, on the tee. I mean, my hands would be shaking so hard. I don't know that I could do it. Do you remember the first time you sucked the peg in the ground on the first tee and what that was like? I do, actually. Uh, in 87,
0: um, I blasted right down the middle. I was super nervous. Just so excited. Uh Man, yeah, I think I think I got off to a pretty good start that day and uh, you know, in the course of next year I almost won and easy, you know, when, when Sandy Lyle hit that shot out of the bunker on eighteen. Uh, you know, everybody asked me, Well, what what do you think about that? And I said, Well, in eighty eight I said he hit an amazing shot. I made an amazing birdie, but it's not a big deal because uh I, I, I think I'll win this tournament uh you know, one year. Or so, <clears throat> you know, that's kind of the way I thought of it. But it, obviously it didn't happen. And uh, I, I would have loved had a had a green jacket. If Sandy would just hit a crappy shot out of the bunker, it would have been nice. <laughs> but but who knows? I mean, maybe I wouldn't have won the Open in 89 either. So you, you don't know. You, you,
1: you know how history works. You just don't know. Right. And speaking of that open championship victory in 89, I'm curious about your time with the Claret jug and, um, and what that was like. Cause again, if, if it were me, that year that I got to have the Claret jug, I would have taken that thing with me everywhere. I'd have taken it to restaurants, drank everything I could have drank out of it, even if I was just drinking water. Right. What were some of the things that you got to do with the Claret jug that, uh, that you had fun with?
0: No, yeah, I took it, uh, like, like, like all the open champions do. I took it, uh, I took it all over the place. Uh, probably the funniest thing was even just that week when I stayed at the, uh, was, at the time it was called the British Caledonian Hotel in Ayr. Uh, there's a bar on the fourth floor and we went up there every night. My buddy and I was catting for me. And, uh, <clears throat> of course, it said, you know, when I, when I went to turn, what we're going to bring it clear a jug up here and we're all gonna have a drink out of it and everybody's like, Yeah, 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 that's funny, blah blah blah. <clears throat> so fair enough, uh after I won, uh we went straight up to the bar when we got back to the hotel and uh the whole place was packed. And it it was it was pretty funny. But uh I had a lot of good times with the jug as uh all the champions do. Um when I had to bring it back the next year at St Andrews uh the invitation was for like uh seven thirty for eight. So I didn't know what that meant. So I I assumed that meant eight. So I showed up at eight and the and the, the press ripped me for being late. But uh my friends and I that uh head over there for the uh defending champion thing at St Andrews, uh so there was still uh champagne on the cup when I brought it back. So they kinda of rocked me up for that as well. <laughs> bringing the cup back with, with champagne in it, and I was, uh, and I was late. So I think it roughed up pretty bad for that.
1: Mark, thinking back over your career, what are some of the favorite shots that you've hit that you enjoy thinking back on? And, and what are some of the shots that you've seen other players hit that you thought to yourself, wow, I can't believe you just pulled that off?
0: Right. Um, you know, I think about, I, I go back and think about uh Uh, Some of the Phoenix Opens I've won, and a few of the shots I hold there. Uh, I actually saw a thing from uh, uh, Royal Sydney when I won the Australian Open in 88, and I know Gil Hans is redoing that course, which is a second redo, and I I chipped in five times that week. So I've I've had some good flashbacks of uh, – of really good memories on, on courses that, uh, that I've won at uh, at Riviera in '88, uh, '89 no, when I won. Uh, I chipped in five times as well there, and I remember Sandy Lyle giving me a shady look. That uh, <laughs> when I chipped in from the hill on eighteen, he just scowled at me. So uh, there's there, there's been times, uh, you know, back. Back in the day when my short game was on fire, where uh, uh, a lot of guys kind of gave me strange looks. So I, I, I do have good memories of that.
1: What about some of the other guys that, uh, that you've been playing with that have pulled off some shots that had you shaking your head outside of Sandy Ohio, at the Masters?
0: Yeah, no, there's, there's been a lot of that. Uh, Fred Couples at the uh, 88 or 89 Byron Nelson. Flew his drive 10 yards out of bounds in the playoff. It hit a rock and jumped back in bounds. Uh, Anyway, so he ended up beating me in the third hole of the playoff. So that that was kind of a crappy break. So I always get afraid (laughs) crap about that. But, um, yeah, no, there's been a lot of great shots played against me. Uh, I I go back and think about Ryder Cups and stuff and, uh, you know, let Monty tie me. And '91 at Kiowa was, uh, of course, a a big memory. And now Monty, you know, is is a fixture out here on the Champions Tour, and he's great. I mean, he really is. He's he's got a great personality. Uh, He's very well accepted, and uh, uh, we have we have a lot of fun together.
1: Mark, just a couple more before I let you go. And you mentioned the Phoenix Open, and you've won three times. And going away. Every time you won by seven, you won by five, you won by eight. What was it about the Phoenix Open that uh, brought out the best in you? I just love playing at home, and I won two
0: Hondas as well, uh, staying at home. So five of my 13 wins have been at home. Uh, There's something about it. Uh, Just home cooking, staying at home, playing in front of my friends, trying to show off. Uh, I just love it. Uh, You know, I love the TPC Scottsdale uh it was uh you know a golf course that uh you couldn't really afford to short side yourself, but if you did, you had to have an amazing uh bunker game and and flop shot game, which I always had so i I think it just uh the golf course set up perfectly for me and and those greens aren't easy to read, and for some reason uh I could read them uh made a lot of putts there, you know it's just uh just my favorite event. Uh, just, just the uh, Thunderbirds gave me uh, like 200 tickets every year, and I got rid of every one of them. And it was so cool to have all my friends out there uh, watching me, and it just really fired me up to play good.
1: And Mark, like I mentioned in your intro, at the 2009 Canadian Open, you made nine consecutive birdies in your second round, and I'm, I'm curious during that run. Did you know you were on that streak? Did your caddy know you were on that streak? And were they, they were sort of treating you like a pitcher throwing a no-hitter? No one wanted to talk to you about
0: it. <laughs> two funny stories about that. My 14-year-old son caddied for me. And uh, when I made four birdies in a row, he, he gave me like a, a fist pump and said, "Yeah, that's like four in a row. I said, yeah, I know. Cool. And then I had... Uh, you know, I made a few more in a row, and then uh, uh on 18, I hit a five-wood about 10 feet for my seventh birdie in a row. And I thought, well, shoot, if I make this, I'm going to screw up the birdie streak. Uh, anyway, <laughs> I, I, of course, I tried to make it and just missed it. And then I thought to myself, well, the next hole is not a hard hole. The next hole is a par five. And and I knew the, the record was eight. And guess who I'm playing with? J.P. Hayes. It was one of the guys that had eight in a row. Wow. So, sure enough, and I didn't think of that at the time, but uh, on my eighth hole, I hit a, not a hard hole, I hit a driver nine in there about five feet. Had a downhill, left to right bender and, and poured it right in the middle. And so on the ninth hole, after eight in a row, it's a par five. And my son says, he's 14. He says, Dad, don't duck hook it over there by the fence like you did yesterday
3: <laughs> and
0: uh it, it, of course it just made me laugh and uh th- that totally relaxed me i hit a perfect drive five wood on the green two putter from 30 feet and uh jp hayes after i made nine in a row comes up to me and says thanks thanks for breaking the only pga tour record i ever had <laughs> <laughs> so it, it, he was really cool about it, it was pretty funny and uh I almost birded the next hole. I, I missed the green, and my chip lipped out for 10 in a row. So that that would have been pretty cool if I have one in. But, yeah, it was it was a great streak for sure.
1: Mark, before I let you go, let our listeners know how they can stay up to date with all the great things you're doing and the tournaments you're going to be playing in and follow you on social media. Yep, I'm on Twitter, Mark Kalk,
0: and uh, uh, Facebook as well. But mostly Twitter. Uh that's that's my that's my hang and
1: uh uh I try to keep everybody amused the best I can. Indeed. Well Mark, I can't thank you enough for coming back and being a part of the show tonight. Always a lot of fun getting to spend time with you. I hope you'll come back and do it again sometime. As always, Chris. Thanks for having me. You bet. Stay safe, Mark. All the best to you and your family. Look forward to catching up soon. You got it. See you, Mark. That's the great Mark Kalkovecchia, another guy who, uh, such a great uh, PGA and and Champions Tour career. I mean, you think about all the things that he achieved, not only the, the Open Championship in 89, but I mean, 193 top 10 finishes, 351 top 25. Another guy who belongs in the World Golf Hall of Fame. All right, folks, now back when making his seventh appearance with me here on the French Lick Resort Guest Line as 2013 Senior Open Champion, and now one of the top instructors in the game, and that's Mark Weeby. Let me remind you a little bit more about Mark's background. He's from Seaside, Oregon, and grew up in Escondido, California, played his college golf at Palomar Junior College, and then transferred to San Jose State. While at Palomar, he was the individual medalist at the 1977 California Amateur and he won the 1977 Idaho Amateur as well. He was named second-team All-American in 1979 while at San Jose State. That season, he and Don Levin won the Silverado Invitational in Napa, California. He turned pro in 1980 and started on the PGA Tour in 83, got his first career win at the 1985 Anheuser-Busch Classic when he beat John Mahaffey with a birdie on the first playoff hole. He won again the following year at the 86 Hardys Golf Classic by one stroke over Kirk Byron, thanks to a birdie on 17 during the final round. Mark matched Bobby Watkins' record as being the youngest winner on the Champions Tour at 50 years and 10 days old when he won the SAS Championship 2013. Like I say, he won the Senior Open Championship at Royal Birkdale, defeating Bernhard Langer on the fifth playoff hole after a final round 66. Later in 2013, he captured the Pacific Links Hawaii Championship in a playoff over Corey Pavin. In all, he's won eight times as a professional, twice on the PGA Tour, five times on the Champions Tour, plus the 1986 Colorado Open. He's now the Director of Instruction at San Jose Country Club in San Jose, California. And I'm very thrilled he is back with me again tonight here on Next on the T. Hey, Mark, thanks for coming back on the show. How are you, my friend?
3: Hey, Chris. How you
1: doing, bud? I'm doing fantastic. Thank you, Mark. So, Mark, as you and I were communicating prior to the show, it's, uh, it's been about five months since we got to have you here, but you've had some good, good news, good stories going on out there in San Jose. Catch us up. What's been going on with you?
3: Well, there's a, there's a whole bunch of stuff going on. Right now, the, uh, we're, we're absolutely thriving with the uh, inside the ropes in the 70-30 club. Uh, the juniors are making are, are just doing fantastic uh you know it's we we've talked about this before it's it's I'm, what i'm sharing with the kids is not a technique or a theory or uh something i read about this is it's more about learning how to shoot lower and that kind of involves a lot of stuff the swing being maybe a small part of that but the rest of it is course management game management short game putting chipping pitching bunkers you know, that's, that's where you actually lower your score. So helping the kids, uh, develop some nice practice habits and, and focus their time, uh, like, like the, the club stands for about 70% of the time we try to get the kids to work on short game, uh, cutting, and pitching, bunkers, flops, you name it, everything there is to do around the green. Uh, and then, of course, 30% of the time we do focus on the range and, you know, swing type stuff. And, uh, all, all I know is when I, I see these kids going out and shooting lower and, and, and advancing in tournaments and, uh, it's, it's kind of cool to see, uh, that we're doing the right thing. It's kind of great feedback for not only them, but for us too as, as instructors to, to see some of our kids excel in some areas that, you know, maybe maybe even them didn't think they'd go this far this fast. So that's kind of that's the funnest part of the job, without a doubt. I know "funnest" is not a word, but um, <laughs> I use it. I use it a lot. Anyway, that that's kind of really happening right now. Uh, you know, schools getting ready to start. So that's all going to change for the kids, and and it should. You know, schoolwork comes first, and Their golf will be kind of more late afternoons and weekends. Um, And we got a lot of kids that are getting ready to make some decisions on what colleges to go to. And it's an exciting time around uh, San Jose Country Club.
1: And, Mark, as you talk about some of the, the things that are the most fun for you now, right, as an instructor, when you're watching these junior players and they're developing their games and they're shooting lower scores and I'm sure you're whether it's watching them on the practice range or out with a playing lesson, or maybe you're you're uh, you're seeing some of them play in tournaments. Talk about some of the things that you've seen when you're watching. And you go, yeah, that kid, he's got it. She's got it. That's awesome. Talk about some of the those victories that you feel now as you're watching and living through some of your students.
3: Well, I I think uh the, lately uh I think I've seen more adversity uh, come up with some of the kids meaning it might be an unbelievable out of the blue triple bogey on a hole to go from shooting under to over and how they responded to that and how they could leave that uh, and not take it with them to the next shot let alone the next hole because all that does is make it worse So, um, but to see them kind of trust that because we all go through the time that we have a bad hole and you know i'm 61 it's hard to shake that i'm i'm bummed out or mad or something for a while that i just completely botched a hole and you know turned a maybe a birdie opportunity into a bogey or wh- whatever the scenario uh you know you just kind of uh it's hard to let that go sometimes and um, and the juniors don't have much reference to that. So they don't have look back and have these experiences about how to deal with certain situations. So I'm trying to help them. It's not really a shortcut, but I'm trying to share with them the different scenarios and how important it is to get mad, get over it. Don't take that with you for one more second. Be into this next shot, this next hole, because this next shot is the most important one of the day. And and it continues throughout year round. And trying to uh, trying to to have them believe that sometimes because they sometimes look at me like you're a chubby white haired guy. What do you know? What you're talking about? And uh, so we have our moments that um, I they they see it happening. They see the scenario we talked about, and then seeing them deal with it. Uh, and either way, any way they deal with it, just dealing with it. It
1: is a thrill to watch that. And one of the things you mentioned a moment ago, Mark, is course management. How do you teach the kids to be patient out on the course? And, and, you know, sometimes you just got to take your medicine, right? You've hit a bad shot. You got to take your medicine. You make a bogey, walk to the next tee, and move on from there. How do you teach them not to let a bogey turn into a double or a triple by trying to play a hero shot, or not to, you know, mess up the course management piece and put yourself into, into a deeper, worse situation by trying a shot that you really should.
3: Well, right. There's a fine line there, you know, because you want, as I don't care what age you are, you want to use your imagination. And if you see a shot and you know it in your heart and in your gut that that's the shot to hit, it's hard to not go with that. On the other hand, I will tell you this: the better you get with your wedges, a la Tom Kite, the better you get with your wedges. Is to play a percentage game when you're going up to look at your shot, because every shot has a plan. Not you don't just get up and hit. You have to your lie kind of dictates right away. Your lie and swing dictate what your plan is going to be. Do I have a good lie? Is it sitting down on the rough? Is it sitting up? Is it in the fairway? Is it in a divot? Each one has its own plan. So, um, you know, that's the first and foremost thing. And if you really do play golf this way, and it's so hard, it's so easy to sit here and talk about it, but I I know it. I, I know this because I know when I had success or anybody I watched have success, this is where they were. They never were bothered. It never bothered them. A bad shot never bothered them. It, it, it's like it didn't happen. So I think it in their minds it didn't happen almost. And, and in my mind when I was in that level of it doesn't matter that I hit it over there because now I'm going to hit it over here and then I'll chip it up and make a putt. What's the big deal? So it's that mentality that if we can get – um I'm telling the juniors all the time, if you're the same talent-wise as the one next door to you, your guys are exactly the same, how are you going to beat that person? And the answer is 100% mental. So, we spend a lot of time on thoughts and situations and what would you think and does it matter that you just made a triple? Does it matter that you just made an eagle? Does it matter? Does it change your game plan? Do you stick stay the course. Um, And then again, each shot has a plan. So, I mean, if we can get this down to where we're really thinking about the game as a game, like if you and I just decided to play this silly game of golf, how would we do it? We wouldn't start off by thinking about swing thoughts and rotate your forearms and make sure at the top the club does this. We'd be trying to hit the ball as straight and far as we could. However, we did it and trying to get that across in this day and age of trackmen and FlightScope and quad pro and teachers that teach stuff that you go, whoa, you know, that's a lot. So I'm kind of trying to be that guy, I guess. Um, I just teach by my experience and my, and things I've been through. And I tell the kids all the time, this is not something I made up. This is something I learned from people. You don't know their names. Ben Crenshaw, <laughs> Fuzzy Zoller, you know, Tom Kite, uh, Raymond Floyd. I mean, it, the list goes forever. So Dave Stockton, Hubert Green, these, these are the guys that taught me how to really play golf as a professional. So, um, I didn't make this stuff up. This is all, it's all good stuff. It's all for the, it's great for the kids because they don't have that anywhere. So it's kind of nice to, uh, and then of course I'm, I'm a total nag on putting because I felt like, you know, whenever I played good in a tournament or had my wins, it wasn't because I was hitting it farther than everyone else or hitting it closer because I it better than everybody else in the tournament. So let's start caring about our putting just just a little bit more than normal. So that's my big... So there's, a lot, to,
1: so there's a lot to get to on what you just said, Mark. And I, I want to start with, with, you mentioned some of the great players in the history of golf there a moment ago. Who are some of the guys that you played with that bad shots never bothered them? Well, without a doubt, the
3: best, the one I used as an example, even though the kids... Some of them know him, some of them don't. But Tom Watson is the best I've ever seen in my life, ever. There's no close second. He he is amazing. I mean, I, I've been out with him when he's hit. Every single shot he hits is perfect. And then I've been out with him when there's not a perfect shot even resemble a perfect shot out of his bag. And I promise you, I think the score was pretty close. And so was his demeanor. And I I just was... I couldn't believe it because you know I had watched him before I got on tours. I I teased him a little bit and said, "Hey, I, when I was a kid, I used to watch I watched everything about it. You don't miss a beat." And I watched him so many times, playing with him, especially that I thought uh, he's the toughest guy I've ever seen. I can't believe he's not bothered. And and if he is, and how could he not be? Because that was the dumbest double bogey I've ever seen in my life. He just made, but he you. It's over. It's over. And it's an awesome thing to watch. I got to tell you, it's one of my coolest stories. I share that with the
1: kids a lot. And Mark, you talked about wedge play and how wedge play can get you out of uh, a bad shot or you save par. Talk about lie and, and, and wedge choice and how we know which, which wedge we should be pulling based on the lie of the ball and and uh, you know where we're trying to chip it up to. How do we know if we got the right one?
3: Well, there's times that you're limited with your choice because, let's say, if you're in a divot and and if there is an obstacle in between you and the hole that you need to elevate the ball, you you're, you know, good luck. It's a different plan than if you were sitting really pretty. Um, so the lie kind of dictates that. But if, if you did have a really good lie, you know, we we all pitch differently, of course, the, the more shallow you are, um, the more vertical the club is at impact, the more you're really using your bounce on your club. So, you know, different softer ground is different bounce. You would need different bounce than harder ground. Um But the whole story is you're trying to figure out which bounce is right for you so you can have like a zero out fault mode that you're in. This is how I, when I hit a pitch, this is how I hit it with this club um, to know which bounce um, is right for you. And that, that's why I'm, I have a, a lot of the juniors trying to have different bounces on their 60 or 58 degree than on their 54 or 52 degree, I guess it is. Um, so you if you, you may have different lofts, but you also have different bounces according to the lie. You're going to need different bounce for different lie situations. It's hard to pick a generic one because... I don't think they, for each person, if it says 12, and you and I went out to hit pitches with the same exact sand wedge that had 12 degrees bounce, you might think a little differently than I do as that feel, because your bottom might be in a little different spot than mine. So we it might be the exact same wedge, and we might look semi-similar to hitting the shot, but the bounce will be affected uh differently by both of us, just the way we come into the ball, just. Well, that's how individual it is. I can tell you this. I'm a huge believer in bounce. I don't like no bounce. I like bounce on irons,
1: all my irons,
3: not just my wedges.
1: So, Mark, one of the other things you talked about was putting. And I wanted to get your thoughts on <laughs> putting because I saw one of, one of the great videos that you have out there earlier this summer. I know you were working with your uh, junior students on four-foot putts. What's a what's a good way for us to make sure that we are more consistently sort of making those knee knockers so we're not kicking ourselves as we walk off the green having two putted from 4 feet. Right.
3: Well, you know, there's a couple things
1: mentally uh you need to hit the
3: putt like you're trying to make it. You can't wish it in or hope that it goes well. You have to hit it like you're trying to make the putt. That's A. Um, you need to realize that on a four foot putt, I, I mean, sometimes you have to break it down very simple. On a four foot putt, how really, how far back should your putter travel on a backstroke on a four foot putt? You know, it could be, some people might say four inches, six inches, eight inches. All I know is it's not very far because if your putter goes back further on a ten footer, and shorter on a five-footer than on a four-footer, it's even shorter yet. So I think when I remember playing on the the pro-ams, most amateurs had longer strokes. And I thought, why why are you taking such a long stroke on a four-foot putt? Because it's only going to lead to a deceleration when you'd rather have a shorter stroke, seemingly, that would accelerate into the ball and send it on its way. So I, that would be my first go-to is we don't need a whole bunch of stuff going on on a four-footer. You could take the putter back three inches behind the ball, set it on the ground, stop, pause, and then go through, and you'd make it. You can take it back three inches, set it on the ground, stop, and then go through, and you'd make a four-footer time after time. So I think we put a little too much into these perfect strokes that everybody – seemingly thinks we have to make, and listen into aiming and making contact.
1: Mark, one more before I let you go. And like I mentioned in your intro, you defeated Bernard Longer in a playoff six years ago to win the Senior Open Championship. You won that event on a two-day playoff. You, had, you kind of finished almost in the dark uh, on Sunday, you had to go to Monday to, to win the event, four more holes that morning. What was it like sleeping? on that lead knowing you had to get up in the morning and it, uh, it's sudden death at that point. How do you deal with that?
3: Well, uh, actually, we had played, let me see, we had played two holes and I, I talked him into playing one more because I thought this might be my only shot to win. Bernie wins everything. So I thought I better take my, well, I have a shot. I better take it. Uh, unfortunately, we tied, so we had to sleep to in. But I can tell you this. I was on the phone with my wife who was then, next to my son who was home and he was on the phone with whoever trying to get my flight switched around because I was supposed to leave Monday to go to Minneapolis so I needed to have my whole thing changed because I wasn't going to make that Monday flight so I was up so late that finally my wife and my son talked me into going to sleep which good luck with that because I had some adrenaline going on I'm confused I had unpacked unpacked and unpacked and then iron and unpack and then I got up and then I just, it was kind of a blur I think I slept a couple hours but all I know is when I woke up in the morning I thought, you know what, I'm ready to do business I tied him twice I can win this tournament, I I need some luck, there's no doubt This Bernie is like one of the, are you kidding me? He's one of the all-time evers, so uh, even before his champion uh, tour record, he was already there so You know, I took a little good grace and I think it was maybe my turn. And, uh, that was, it was a, it was a, as looking back, it was a fun night to sleep. I'm not so sure how much I slept. (laughs) No doubt.
1: Mark, remind our listeners, how can they stay up to date with all the great things you're doing to follow you, whether it's online or it's on social media?
3: Wow. Um, you know, i my, the best way to get a hold of me ever is markwebegolf.com. That's my website. Got all my emails and, uh, things we're doing with 7030 club. If you're a junior, uh, just quickly, just so everyone knows, as much as we love our stay here and have loved our stay, we are moving in about two months and we're going to relocate in Arizona. And as soon as I know, I'm going to take my 70-30 club, and it's going with me. It's right in my back pocket. And uh, we're going to start a new program down in Arizona. And as soon as I know where that is, I would love to share that with you. So I'll be to our next conversation for
1: sure. Absolutely. That's exciting news. Good for you. Look forward to having you back on the show, Mark, and talk all about it. That's awesome. Give me an excuse to get back on here
3: with you. (laughs) Indeed.
1: Mark, thank you so much for your time, my friend. Always uh, a lot of fun having you as part of the show. I I look forward to uh, hearing all about Arizona and having you back on the show again real soon.
3: That's awesome, Chris. Thanks so much, bud. All
1: right. Take care, Mark. All the best to you and your family. That is Mark Wiebe. And uh, again, Mark Wiebe Golf, W-I-E-B-E. MarkWiebeGolf.com is his website. look forward to hearing all about the move to Arizona and the great things he's doing there and always so much fun having Mark as part of the show. Uh, Hopefully, like I say, we get that news again and have him back real soon.